more soldiers than you did. Welcome back, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the Alternate Current Radio Network and also at 21stCenturyWire.com. The show will be available afterwards, uh, later this evening, on iTunes and the podcasting platform. Forms, 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 for your listening, leisure convenience. Again, I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. This is episode 250. Uh, I've had a little bit of a hiatus. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, uh, working on other things. Uh, glad to be back, and I'm here in studio with uh, Mike Robinson, the editor of the UK Column. Hello, Mike. Good evening, Patrick. And uh, on the line with us, uh, I've got a guest uh, who you are all familiar with. Uh, she's a journalist. Uh, she's many things, also associate editor at 21st Century Wire. And uh, if you've been following her reporting uh, recently, you'll know that she's actually been in Syria uh, over the last month, and she's joining us now uh, from Europe, uh, and Vanessa Beely is on the line. Hello, Vanessa. Hi, it's good to be back, and good to have you back. Thank you, thank you. Great to have you back, too. And uh, I was especially uh, enthralled with some of your uh, <laughs> revelations, Vanessa. Uh, it's certainly been an interesting journey for you uh, in Syria this time, uh, and if you can... Um, Share with us uh, what were some of the revelations that uh, that you came to realize uh, over this past month. Uh, I know we've got a few interesting things we're going to talk about before we talk about the White Helmets uh, mm-hmm. and also your experience in the southern part of the country. Um, mm-hmm. Just give us your general impressions uh, about, uh, you know, what what do people need to know about the situation in Syria right now? What are the what are the what good things are happening, and what what are some of the the risks that still remain? um, Well, yeah, I mean, you're right in the sense that this trip was um, particularly intense and particularly uh, it it was a really uh, packed schedule that I had. Actually, only ended up having about two or three days in Damascus, which is pretty unusual. Um, So we went uh, pretty much from one end of the country to the other, missing out Idlib, although I did go to the front lines uh, uh, with Idlib at the two uh, Christian towns of Mahade and al Skalbiya, both of which had come under attack from the terrorist groups in Idlib uh, the day before I uh, visited them. Um, and in fact, Eva Bartlett also went into Mahade after me and interviewed the young father, Shadi, who'd uh, lost uh, his three children, his wife and his mother, in the attack. Um, so that was kind of, uh, I guess, among my opening visits to actually go to the front line before uh, the Russian-Turkish uh, ceasefire was put in place and to actually face <laughs> the terrorist groups that in those areas included Jaish al-Islam, Nusra Front, Arar Sham, um, and particularly in al Qaribiya, uh, we were only, we were taken probably about 500 metres from the Medea Citadel, which was occupied by those three groups, and by the White Helmets. We were actually pointed out the White Helmet Centre 
um, the cluster bombs and uh, the grad missiles that had been fired into both Christian towns had come from those areas, so from Madea Citadel, which was occupied, as I say, by the three terrorist groups, most of which had been um, evacuated from Eastern Ghouta and then come and occupied Madea Citadel alongside the White Helmets. And as I said, we were shown what was the White Helmet building. We were only 500 metres away, so it was very easy to photograph. It was very easy to see the Nusra Front checkpoints, which were actually only about probably 400 metres away. Um, and these towns that are on the front lines are, of course, um, systematically under attack by these groups. But I think um, with the uh, Turkish-Russian um, deconfliction zone, you know, the, what the Russians have done here is, is actually play an absolute flanker, in my opinion. Because at that point, um, there was a definite risk of escalation of the conflict with the potential of a chemical weapon attack being staged. And, you know, even since my arrival in Syria, we were following the staging of those attacks and we were speaking to parents whose children had been kidnapped and who were clearly either about to be used or had been used in staged videos that had been pre-produced, if you like, according to reports from on the ground, to be sent to the uh, UN as soon as the Syrian Arab army basically started its ground attack. So we were sort of, at, at that point, we were very much on a knife edge and everyone, there, there was a bit of a kind of Mexican standoff and everyone was waiting for who would blink first. Then with the Turkish-Russian agreement, of course, what, what Russia did uh, was to completely outfox um, the US coalition and its proxies on the ground. And in fact, uh, Leith Abu Fadel pointed that out today and I'll read from his Facebook post. Uh, the Russians have completely screwed over, um, he uses the word rebels. The new Idlib agreement means that the opposition forces have had to withdraw 15 to 20 kilometers, but the Syrian army doesn't. The rebels have already rejected it, which means that the Syrian army will be given the green light to attack and it can claim those areas. So in other words, on all fronts, Russia has actually completely outmaneuvered um, the, the, the intervention alliance. And that, you know, the, the displeasure with that agreement was shown by Israel that on the night of the agreement, of course, it bombed uh, Latakia. It bombed what used to be an aluminium factory uh, in Latakia and, of course, um, brought down or, or it caused the bringing down of um, the Russian warplane with 15 personnel on board by using it as cover, according to um, the reports that have since come out. And, of course, then what that has precipitated is the supply of the S-300s to um, Syria. So there, there's been sort of a whole domino effect, I guess, um, from that Russian-Turkish agreement um, in Idlib. And, of course, what it's also done is, is given Turkey full responsibility for the armed groups it controls. So it has no way to run to. If they break the ceasefire, then Turkey is responsible for them. So it's, it's I, you know, many people criticized it when it first happened. Many people felt that the battle shouldn't have been um, delayed. But people in Syria are tired, um, you know, and however you look at it, a, a campaign to liberate Idlib would, would be a very, very difficult one. Um, the existing humanitarian corridor that is opened at uh, Abu Duhur 
uh, is being shelled on a regular basis um, by Julani's armed groups. Um, we know from people who've managed to leave Edlib that the terrorist groups are charging upwards of $600 to civilians to be able to leave by these humanitarian corridors. So familiar tactics that we saw, you know, we've we've seen in, in other areas where the Syrian government and the Russian reconciliation teams are attempting to preserve civilian life by providing the humanitarian corridors, by enabling civilians to leave. And that is being sabotaged by the terrorist groups that are shelling the exit points that are um, charging extortionate amounts of money for civilians to be able to leave safely because they don't want them to leave. They want them to remain as, as hostages and human shields. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this, this, is, this is interesting. The other thing um, I noticed is that, uh, the, well, besides all of the Western, the usual suspects, uh, Samantha Power and the rest of the, you know, responsibility to protect uh, crowd, uh, all sort of, you know, saying, oh, this is the in Trump as well. Uh, this is going to be a humanitarian disaster. Three million people are going to die uh, in Idlib, if uh, if they retake the city um, or re- to try to retake Idlib city and so forth, uh, and so so that it was kind of it, it seemed like the, the, there was this uh, escalation in the West in the media that were preparing uh, for you know f- for this to happen or for this mm-hmm. kind of sort of major confrontation to take place, uh, and it's really just taken completely deflated the. Mm-hmm. Uh, t- attention and Vanessa it looks to me like this move by by Russia this this deal that was negotiated uh, with Russia the Russian Turkish ceasefire it does help Aleppo the city a little bit it provides a little bit of a buffer uh, yeah. for the city of Aleppo how how does that how is that working for them yeah I mean I think it did I think the big risk um, speaking to people on the ground particularly military was that there would be uh, an attack on Aleppo from either the south or the west. And so I think um, what this did, it also gave the Syrian Arab army time to sort of regroup and recalibrate um, on all the fronts because, again, Id- Idlib has a number of fronts. It's not only, um, you know, it's almost like a pincer, um movement, if you like, by the Syrian army towards Idlib. Um, and so, yes, it, it certainly gave... Aleppo breathing space but you know it also gave as I said the border towns that were getting targeted on a daily basis almost that gave them a a breathing space as well and it also allowed more time to try and um, extricate civilians from from under the terrorist occupation before the campaign started but of course you know, as as Leith pointed out, the, the the terrorists have already rejected the agreement, which means that the Syrian Arab army has every right to, to move in militarily and to take that territory. Um, and I think what it also did, because the U.S. rhetoric was becoming more and more unhinged, you know, instead of simply saying that they would bomb Syria if there was a chemical attack, it suddenly got reduced down to if there were any sort of attack, right? And so this was sort of snowballing very rapidly. And I think what this did was just kind of stick a pin in that in that entire agenda and deflate it, as you said. And I, I think um, for all of Syria, it just gave them it gave them a tremendous breathing space, I think. And while the initial reaction was, you know, from among those who who uh, tried to discredit the Russian involvement in Syria, 
um, who immediately jumped on the wagon of, you know, oh, this is Russia working with Turkey and blah, 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 and preventing the Syrian army retaking um, what's, you know, the, the Syrian territory in Idlib. Um, now, of course, as it's playing out, we're saying that it was a very clever move. Um, in the South, uh, the, the South is a very complex situation, in fact. Um, in Sweda, I visited Sweda, which, of course, had been the scene of the ISIS military attack uh, on the 25th of July, when 270 civilians um, and national defense were, were massacred. Um, now, speaking to residents there, the, the sense of shock, the sense of horror, and the sense of anger was still very raw, so it was quite difficult to get to speak to people about what happened, and many people didn't want photographs taken, etc. But those we did speak to clearly pointed the blame at the at America and at the Al Tanef base. They said that the ISIS militants had come in from that area and had not, you know, they'd not been prevented in advance um, by the, the United States or its or the U.S. coalition. They entered uh, the three villages, three main villages of Adami, Shbeki, and Shrehi at 4 a.m. Um, so under the cover of darkness, they shot out all of the village lights. Um, as I said, this was a very well-planned military uh, campaign. They surrounded each village and they posted snipers along the roads that, that connected the villages, which were only about a kilometre apart. And this was intended to prevent neighbouring villages coming to the help of villages under attack. Um, and then, basically, once the villages were surrounded, they entered the home. So this is at 4 a.m. in the morning. People are sleeping. Um, I won't go into too much detail, but they executed uh, civilians while they were sleeping in their beds, including children. One disabled child was beheaded as he was sleeping. Uh, they murdered entire families. Um, one witness told me that they had taken his family into our house. They'd taken the men outside, um, beheaded and executed the men, and then brought the women and children out um, to see the bodies of their sons and fathers before they kidnapped the women and children and took um, 28 of them towards the northeast, so back towards Altanef, in fact, although um, they didn't make it as far as that. Altanef is about, I think it's 300 kilometers. The area that they headed to is about um, Talal al-Safa is about 70 kilometers northeast of the of Sweda and the Sweda countryside um, so you know there is still I mean in, in these areas in particular there was a sense that ISIS had been planning and you know we have to assume that this was with some collusion from the United States coalition They'd been planning to, to take these areas as a strategic um, military point because these villages are heavily underrun with caves. Um, they're built into hillsides, so they have strategically high points in the villages, which were actually immediately taken over by the ISIS terrorists as uh, sniping points from where they could um, kill the young men who were coming um, to defend their families and their homes. 
And one point that was made was that these ISIS terrorists, one, two points actually, one that they were virtually all of them on, I would guess it's Captagon from the description of how it affected them. And two, they were heavily and very expensively armed um, and had very expensive modern vehicles. Um, so this is clearly not a, you know, it's not a, a, a motley bunch of terrorists. This was a heavily armed, well-equipped, well-funded military campaign by ISIS terrorists. Um, and so basically the risk there is still of uh, sleeper cells. We had to leave um, the Sueda countryside before dark because of that risk. There is still a high risk of excuse me, ISIS terrorists coming back into the towns. Um, because of the distance away from the towns of the Syrian Arab Army checkpoints, there are, if you like, um, channels in between the checkpoints that are around five kilometres apart through which ISIS could pass, for example, under the cover of darkness. So basically civilians there have set up their own national defence. But you're talking... You're talking guys with hunting rifles. I mean, this is not, as you find in so many towns and villages and, and even cities across Syria, the national defence um, is is taking up defence of its families, of its towns, um, but is very poorly equipped in contrast to the Western-backed and sponsored and Saudi-financed um, terrorist groups, in particular ISIS. Um, in Dara uh, that I visited um, the day before Sweda actually, and I went to Kunetra the day before that. Uh, in Dara, what is very interesting is that in many areas of Dara, particularly the area from which emanated the original revolution narrative um, around Alomari Mosque, uh, Dara al-Balad, uh, Menshia, we visited all those areas that are actually um, still under the control of a number of the armed factions who stayed in the area, who have not accepted reconciliation, but who are negotiating with the Russian um, reconciliation teams. So it's a very uh, it's a very unstable environment there because the armed groups um, are are not pro-reconciliation, they're not prepared to relinquish um, their so-called revolution. They are in ongoing talks with the Russian reconciliation teams, um, who are, if you like, posted on the outskirts of these areas. Um, but it's a very unstable environment in Dara. And so, uh, and, and so, in terms of Dara, those rebels, uh, I use that term, of course, <laughs> loosely, uh, they're, they're primarily, or they, they do receive backing, uh, or they have from Israel, uh, and that's my mm. understanding, a lot of the Southern Front, uh, mm. those, those terrorist groups, those extremists have got consistent backing mm. in, in many ways from, from Israel. Is that, is that something? Yeah, um yeah, what was interesting was when I was in Konetra, um, which obviously uh, borders the illegally occupied Syrian territory of the Golan Heights, occupied by um, Israel. We actually followed the tracks of uh, the White Helmets, 
or the alleged white helmets, um, as they left under, the, of course, the special um, conditions of the evacuation through that territory and then um, on Israeli buses into Jordan. Now, both when I was in Konetra and speaking to people in Konetra who told me that actually very few what they would term as white helmets left by this evacuation process, that the majority were terrorist leaders um, from a number of groups, Jaish al-Islam, Nusra Front, um, al-Sham, etc., and a number of other splinter groups. And that included um, members of ISIS who'd come down to the south from the Yarmouk Basin during um, the Syrian army campaign to, to liberate that area, the south of Damascus, from ISIS. Um, so that I already heard in Konetra. But then when I was in Dada, and um, almost by happenstance, I stumbled upon uh, a functioning white helmet center with functioning white helmets, um, which we then proceeded to interview. Um, the fact that obviously I didn't give my name, the fact that they thought I was a British journalist and therefore assumed that I was sympathetic um, meant that they were perfectly happy to talk to us. Um, however, uh, during uh, the interview, they did let slip a number of um, comments and statements which basically vindicate and support what we've been saying um, for the last, um, what is it, five years since um, the White Helmets were created. Um, I'm still waiting for the final and full transcript of those interviews before I commit to their statement, to publishing their statements, because I want to make absolutely sure that I haven't missed any nuances in what they were saying. But one thing that they did say and that they were very clear about was that the White Helmets, the terrorist groups that left with Israel's um, protection um, and evacuation services were described as Israel's children. And when we pressed them on this, what they basically said was that all of these terrorist groups, and that included um, the White Helmets working in the areas with the terrorist groups in the south, and particularly in Kanetra, were equipped um, and armed um, by Israel. Another evidence of that that I saw when I was at the, the staging point in Kanetra where they all um, left through the security fence gate that I managed to actually photograph, even though it was <laughs> um, heavily armed by Israeli soldiers. Um, on that actual kind of area, there was a, a concrete pad that had been, I was told, a four-story um, hospital, but a hospital that was specifically for the terrorist groups. And I was also told that basically what they'd done when they left was dismantle the entire building. So they'd taken it down brick by brick and, and completely removed all evidence of its existence. Um, we saw debris of Israeli food supplies, medical supplies, etc. strewn around the area. And we were told that were any fighters um, seriously injured, they were immediately taken through the Israeli security gate and into Israeli hospitals. Um, so again, confirming, you know, what we have been reading and what we've been aware of, but it was good to have it confirmed literally from on the ground and actually to have it confirmed <laughs> by functioning white helmets. They're not even ex-white helmets, these guys, um, and they've now been fully identified. We've traced them um, through 
uh, white helmet videos, we know exactly who they are, and we know that that one of them is definitely the leader of the Dada uh, White Helmet Center. Um, by the way, there was a British uh, fire engine parked in the center. That was just quite amusing. Um, <laughs> and um, so very clearly um, the view, even from those who, you know, you would suspect to be sympathetic to the white helmets that left, um, the, the clear intimation is that, yes, these, these were groups, including the white helmets, who had been working with, being equipped by, and armed by and aided by um, Israel in the South. Um, and one other quite interesting point that came out very early on, and I think that was down to the fact that I was British, was that they were very quick to complain that they hadn't been paid for the last six months. Um, they mentioned Mayday Rescue, um, and they said that they hadn't received any funds from Mayday Rescue. They blamed Raidal Salah because they said that basically he'd, done a runner to Turkey and abandoned them to their fate. Um, so it was quite interesting because they clearly thought I, I might have a voice that, that could carry their complaints to, <laughs> to the, to the um, UK Foreign Commonwealth Office and somehow reinstate their funding. So they, they were definitely on a kind of um, on a mission to impress me, which was particularly amusing had they actually known who I was. I think at one point after he'd put on his entire white helmet gear to pose for the camera. And he said to me, you know, I want you to tell all these people who are attacking us. <laughs> so at that point, I was like, uh-huh, okay. <laughs> So, uh, um, so, that's, so that's interesting, uh, Mike. It seems there's a problem with the uh, Hawala. The Hawala <laughs> payments aren't coming through to the local Hawala agent. So it's not... Uh, <laughs> Not, I guess. I guess those funds have maybe they came through Vanessa, but they got diverted to mm -hmm. buy uh, Stinger missiles or you know yeah, weapons. Well, some sort, yeah. Right? Um, I mean, what was very interesting was, um, of course, they were, you know, um, doing the entire script of, um, you know, we we are impartial, we're neutral, we don't have any affiliation to terrorist groups. But one of the very funny things that he, he actually said in the end, as I say, I think he got a bit carried away, um, and I think he had it in for the other groups of the White Helmets, was he basically said, okay, we're perfect, but all the other groups have Nusra Front leaders, by the way. <laughs> so I was just like, okay, so you just shot your entire White Helmet organization across Syria including in Eastern Ghouta and <laughs> Idlib, um, in, in the interest of trying to present themselves as being the only white helmet group that has no affiliation to terrorist groups. But the That's funniest thing is that having gone back through uh, to identify this particular white helmet, um, I mean, he goes by various names, but the name he gave me was Abu Mohanad uh, al-Mahamid. Um it, it, and then we've gone back through and found that he, we've identified him and found that he uses different names at different times. Um, but we do have a video of him supporting uh, the Ghouta terrorist factions, calling for military action, calling for, uh, what was it, the capture of the coastal areas in Damascus. So not exactly the conflict that holier than thou impartial, neutral, unarmed, <laughs> non-military affiliated 
um, guy next door that he wanted us to believe. And also, at one point, we were joined um, by what I can only describe as a terribly aggressive man um, who turned up speaking perfect American English and who made a beeline for me and basically demanded to know who I was, what I was doing there, why was I interviewing um, the White Helmets, etc. Anyway, it turned out that he, his name is Adam Al-Khlad. Um, now, he was actually, I think he was um, a geoengineer, but he is basically the leader of uh, the Free Syrian Army, the so-called moderates um, in Dara. Now, he invented the Omar rocket, which is a five-ton missile, which I've posted photos of on Twitter, actually, which was used um, not only against military targets, it was also used against civilian targets. And actually, one of the um, Syrian Arab army soldiers that I met with after our trip showed me the shrapnel wounds that he'd received from one of these rockets hitting a residential area very close to the um, military headquarters um, so not exactly the kind of you know again not not the not the friendly next door terrorist type I mean this this was a guy who'd clearly led military campaigns both against civilians that he declared uh, enemies of the revolution and against um, military targets when I spoke to him and I was being very careful with my questions for very obvious reasons um, he actually invited me to attend a protest they were going to be holding in the Alamari Mosque again on Friday after prayers. So my question to him was like, you know, why on earth do you want to kick this all off again? Like, seriously, have you not had enough war and destruction? Um, his answer, which was a very aggressive one, was basically that um, he didn't accept that after six years, they were going to um, capitulate um, and accept reconciliation. So he was very clear he had not accepted reconciliation. They had given up their heavy arms, but they were not giving up their light arms. Um, and they were not, they were, they were simply going to continue. But that was the message he gave me. He also invited me to the protest. Um, when I declined with some feeble excuse, I can't actually remember what I said now. He um, told me that he was going to call CNN and BBC directly to get them to cover it, which I thought was quite an interesting. Oh, so he's got a direct line to uh, yeah. through the CIA. Yeah. I'm sorry, CNN and the BBC. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Yeah, that that was pretty interesting. Actually. Yeah. Um, so he'll call Abu Clarissa, and she'll uh, hook that up. I think mm -hmm. interesting. Hmm. Yeah, so it, it was an interesting conversation and an intro. But but what what was an also an interesting insight was that it was him who came to the White Helmet Center to see what was going on, and and also where this even this White Helmet was placed, it was still in a Nusra Front complex because um, in the yard where they were, um, that yard belonged to what was an old I think it was an old bakery that had been taken over by uh, Nusra Front. Again, you could see the Nusra Front logos. Um, and, and actually, they told us that uh, Nusra Front had been stationed there. So again, you know, they were clearly working alongside Nusra Front. They weren't separate from them. Um, so, um, yeah, it was a kind of an interesting turn up for the books in the sense that um, 
probably, you know, the only remaining criticism of um, our work has been the fact that we've not spoken to white helmets and we've not spoken to the opposition and we've not entered opposition-held areas. Well, hello. <laughs> that's just been... That's just being negated, I think. Yeah, so that that shows you, Mike. When you haven't been paid for six months, you uh, you will t- you will turn against your employer, won't you? So we suggest that maybe he opens up a Twitter account and call it at Real White Helmets on Twitter. Uh, so we'll just uh, just a little advice for our friend, uh, whoever his name is. But my, isn't it interesting, Vanessa, that uh, there was such a big media furor? You remember this? That the mm. White Helmets were being evacuated from the south, Israel providing safe passage, and then to Jordan. And here, they haven't been evacuated. So the question is, and what you, I think, are alluding to here, Vanessa, is the White Helmets weren't evacuated to Israel, but somebody else was evacuated via Israel. And yeah. those major yeah. fighters, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I I need to actually go back through the videos to get the figures because he was actually very clear about the numbers that um, left through Israel. Um, but he was also clear that the minority were, you know, what might be loosely called white helmets. The reason I'm I'm kind of hesitating on this one is because I think what this trip has highlighted maybe more than others to me, um, particularly when I spoke to uh, refugees from terrorist-occupied Idlib who managed to get into Sinjar, which is an area which has been retaken by the Syrian Arab army. So it's a safe area. Speaking to and interviewing um, those families, what they told me very clearly, and and they didn't really realize what they were saying, but they said, look, the one thing they noticed, because they'd been telling me about the White Helmets kidnapping children, kidnapping adults and so on, that they appeared to be running the, the, the kidnap gangs, let's say, the child the the child catches um what uh he told me and and as i said he didn't really realize what he was saying but he said look each terrorist group has their own white helmets now to me what that signifies is that those white helmets come from that terrorist group not the other way around which is what we've always suspected you know when we go back through um the history of, uh, of my investigations for example into east aleppo where nobody had seen or heard of the white helmets this kept um bugging me because i kept thinking they're producing like four or five videos a day how on earth can these people not know who they are or not recognize the white helmet uniform but i think literally what it was and i think that came to light when i did the jebel kube investigation which was in east aleppo um which was a fake news report produced by the white helmets where you could clearly see that they were fighters that had put on a white helmet for um the video and for the um images if you remember of the bodies on the ground and the orange um, body bags etc one of the kind of iconic um reports produced by the white helmets at the time during the liberation so when he made this statement and he said each terrorist group has their own white helmets it became very clear that that actually they are the terrorist group or they are the the extremist group whether it's Nur al-Dinzinki or al-Sham etc um they're, they're not a separate entity um they work in in absolute sync with whichever terrorist group that they're embedded with i mean for example we saw it as i said on the front line when we looked into Medea uh, citadel and you can see the white helmets center the highest building again 
in the midst of buildings occupied by the three terrorist groups that I mentioned, including Nusra Front, Al-Qaeda. Um, so I think what, what became very clear is, while you could loosely say, yes, there were white helmets that left, um, the majority of those that left were definitely extremist group leaders and terrorist group leaders. And whether you can say the white helmets are also <laughs> terrorists and terrorist group leaders. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's becoming more and more difficult to, to disentangle them um, from the extremist groups. But, you know, we have to ask the question, um, have we seen another sort of Salman al-Baidi operation with um, British special forces expediting their operatives from inside Syria via Israel that was already helping and aiding them um, into Jordan before they're extradited to back to the, or sorry, to the UK. And of course, you know, Alistair Burt was questioned um, by Baroness Caroline Cox as to where exactly these operatives are going to be resettled. And, and again, they're being heavily protected. You know, if this were a simple group of humanitarian volunteers, why on earth would all this level of, of military security um, surround them? Yeah, well, they, they, they'll make the flimsy excuse like, oh, it's for their safety because because <laughs> all of this Russian disinformation has been uh, spread yeah. about the helmets. So I guess that's about as good as they're going to get as far as uh, uh, some cover excuse for mm. that. But you're absolutely true. You know, if they were neutral, if they were purely humanitarian, uh, if they weren't affiliated with uh, al-Qaeda uh, fighting groups, uh, it wouldn't be a problem. It wouldn't be a mm. problem at all. You know, it'd stick them in Chiswick. Uh, and they can, you know, go have a picnic on Sunday uh, with the kids. But, you know, if you look at the, I think anybody who's actually, you know, A, who's been to Syria, and, you know, I've shown some of these, uh, I've talked to Syrians about the white helmets, and they're looking at them, and the first thing they say to me is, uh, these guys are street thugs. You know, if you show me a, a street thug from any country, you show that to a resident of any country, whether it's Poland uh, France, um, Britain, uh, it, it, or China, a, a Chinese street thug. A street thug is a street thug no matter what, or an unemployed street thug, or just some, somebody who maybe isn't good enough to be a frontline terrorist fighter, and they say, just send him to the White Helmets, basically. He'll be mm -hmm. part of the mop-up team. Everybody knows uh, that what it looks like, what it is. But for some reason, the West have projected this angelic image in there. And uh, you, you show this to Syrians or anybody from the Middle East, and they kind of laugh. They're like, how can you guys be so stupid to think that these are some angelic uh, uh, first responder volunteers? I mean, give me a break. Look at them. These are, hard, these are proper criminals. Well, and, and also, Pat, I mean, what the hell are they doing in Dada? There's a ceasefire. So mm -hmm. what are they doing? I mean, the last, when I <laughs> checked, when I checked, no, seriously, when I checked the Dada um, White Helmet YouTube channel, there's just dozens of videos of them washing the streets. I mean, it's just like, well, okay. You know, I suppose waiting for their little um, nest egg from Mayday Rescue that looks very much as if it's not coming. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, they're left with a with an ancient R-Reg um, British fire truck and that's about it and a oh, few yes, a few helmets and a few jackets few high-vis jackets um with english lettering on of course from memory um 
and a few nice fire boots, but that's about it. You know? If the money's not coming, guys, guess what? They're not going to be loyal to the cause anymore. I hate to break it to its common sense. So, you know, mm-hmm. if James isn't isn't getting the Hawala payments through, they're going mm-hmm. to turn against May Day. They will turn against their employers, and uh, and they're going to start blowing the whistle. Mm-hmm. So this is going to be a problem. It's going to continue to be a problem, actually. Uh, yeah. I think that's probably, Vanessa, why there was so... Uh, putting so much effort into, you know, hermetically sealing these guys, getting out as many as they can, because they can't have them running around talking, basically. No, um, and um, actually another sort of aspect that I'm working on, but I've only just started dipping into it at the moment, is that it's very clear that the White Helmets, um, from what I've found, um, are intended to be a global franchise. Um, and so I guess what they want to do is to protect the image of that franchise <laughs> so that it can be reused. Um, and, you know, this is what we've always said right from the beginning is that there has to be a reason why this group is being as heavily protected as it is. Um, and I've said right from the beginning that this is intended to be a global franchise. It's a construct that is intended to be repeated in any number of other intervention um, theatres and, you know, created by British intelligence for that reason. I I wouldn't hugely put any credit on on American intelligence on this one. This is very much a British operation, um, as we've proven um, by showing the connections between the operation that James Mazurier ran in Kosovo to transform the KLA, the Albanian warlords, <coughs> and Al-Qaeda into the um, protection corps. Um, so basically whitewashing um, terrorists and, and mafia dons as a protection corps. But at that point, of course, was when they started basically running um, the organ trade and child trafficking um, uh, operations um, that came that, that happened or occurred under the um, jurisdiction of Bernard Kushner, who'd been put in charge um, of Kosovo at that point by Kofi Annan. So he was UN special representative. James Lemazuria worked under Kushner, and under Kushner he, he whitewashed and transformed um, what was effectively a terrorist organization financed by Britain um, into um, a security corps. So what we've seen really was there the blueprint put into action by Le Mazurier, who then repeated that or a very similar operation in Syria, except that he created it alongside um, the terrorist groups. There's two names that if you see coming into your country that you want to run a mile, one of them is uh, Bernard Kushner. The other would be, uh, of course, uh, Henri Bernard Levy. Uh, mm. If you see these two French gentlemen, uh, trouble is just not too far behind uh, for your country. Really, that's mm. horrific, actually, even just bringing that up. Um, it brings back memories, Mike, of the whole uh, Yugoslavian debacle. Uh, which was sold as a really great uh, NATO operation to, you know, liberate the uh, the downtrodden uh, Kosovans from the evil Serbs. Uh, well, that's how it was sold uh, mm. to all of us. Tony Blair was our uh, just coming into uh, power at that time, so it was all going swimmingly. They sent Patty Ash down to go and look after the mm-hmm. uh, 
the uh, the police force and uh, brought in British bobbies, in fact, uh, to go and train the locals how to mm. give parking tickets. So it went. It was really quite an operation. That's so interesting. Well, look, uh, we've only got a couple minutes left, Vanessa. Uh, you know, there's just, I mean, a, g- a great, great amount of detail there, uh, and certainly really reinforces and gives a lot of credence to uh, past reporting. Of course, uh, I think it's uh, fascinating, Vanessa, that uh, uh, as the fighting. Uh, calms down in some of these areas a whole different level of information comes out as well and so i think it's uh, is extremely interesting mm. and i think you know as as more and more areas um stabilize and suffer burn yeah i mean so much more i mean the documentation that needs to be done actually on on this eight-year war almost eight-year war um is is overwhelming um, because the number of war crimes that have been committed, I mean, even in the two Christian villages that I visited, the use of cluster bombs uh, against clearly residential civilian areas. Um, and I was actually, actually able to film um, Russian um, detonation experts uh, detonating the, the bomblets that have been um, scattered, unexploded around schools, um, playing areas, um, streets, gardens. Um, so, you know, the, the sheer level of um, crimes that have been committed against the Syrian people by what are effectively Western proxies uh, on the ground, financed by the Gulf states, equipped by Israel and supported by Israel, um, are, are just overwhelming and quite horrifying i mean just to leave you with one story which i actually just published on facebook um on on our second last night we we took a taxi um and the driver was a was a very frail 70 year old man he'd driven into an area called jaramania which is in the sort of suburbs of damascus which has been infiltrated or or flooded by refugees coming in from all areas of um, damascus countryside actually um and basically he he'd um taken three passengers three men who held him at gunpoint they stole what little money he had which amounted to about 14 dollars i think um they held a gun with a silencer to his stomach to force him to hand over his money. They beat him and they broke the door of his taxi, which wasn't his taxi. It actually belongs to um, a, a, the owner of the taxi. So he has to go and pick the taxi up every morning to start work. He had a four-story house in uh, Hadra Aswad, which was one of the areas decimated by the terrorist groups. Um, and he suffered with prostate cancer. And they stole his cancer medicine. And after he told us the story, he, he broke down in tears. And he, he actually said, may God never forgive the people who have brought this evil into my country. Um, and I think while the, the spirit in Syria is one of forgiveness, it, it's, a tr- it's a country of tremendous forgiveness and compassion, even towards its enemies. I think the the sheer sadness of of this guy's story was just so indicative of what our countries, our governments have done to this country. They've taken away 
the security and stability and peace that it knew before 2011 and they've replaced it with <clears throat> the effects of war you know the criminal elements the the kind of mafia elements that prey on on the destruction and devastation of war and the destabilization of war um in from every level from the highest levels down to the lowest levels you know to to um gangs in the areas that have been destroyed um that are looting and so on um to this kind of petty crime that ne that, that really when you speak to Syrians it never existed before 2011 so it, it's even on a micro scale we when you're there you come face to face with the effects of what our governments have done to this country and to you know many other countries in the region if we think of Libya if we think of Iraq the same thing but somehow in Syria because Syria has resisted because Syria has consistently understood its enemy um, it is so much more, somehow so much more poignant that, that despite their generosity of spirit, despite their ability to forgive and to reconstruct and to restore their country, they are still having to, on a, on a very human level, deal with the hideous repercussions of what our governments have done to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well... What can we say? What can we say? This is uh, you see the policies come out, Mike. You hear them spoken of in Washington and in, in London, in Paris. You see the you hear the policies come out of the mouths of the policymakers, of the representatives, of the lawmakers, uh, and that's where the policies end up. That's the end result, and you can go and witness that for yourself uh, if you are uh, so uh, able to, as Vanessa has, as some of us have. Uh, but that's the that's the reality of policy, right? Mm. That's the reality. And the question is, how much of that reality of policy is going to be imported into Western nations as some as more of these people start mm. being exported from Syria uh, through mm. Israeli-run airlifts? Yeah, or just just yeah. through the refugee through the refugee uh, channels as well uh, via Greece. That's a whole other story we might get into on a future show. Uh, but, um, yeah, a lot to think about there, and uh, we look forward to uh, seeing some of your reports on this, Vanessa, of course, uh, and uh, adding some additional insight to the story, uh, valuable follow-ups by Vanessa Bealey. Uh, thank you so much, Vanessa. All right. Thanks so much, Pat. Take care. You too. You too. There she goes, ladies and gentlemen. That's Vanessa Bealey there for a fantastic, uh, stunning report. Uh, this segment, if you missed any of the live broadcast of this, uh, this will be available on the archives minutes after the show. We're going to take a short break, uh, and we're going to speak to another independent journalist, uh, Eva Bartlett, after the break uh, for a shorter segment. Stick around, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen, here with Mike Robinson. We'll be right back after these messages. I don't ever say hate is your enemy. Love has practically caused me to just get you destroyed. If I had hated a little more, just a little more. 